think maybe part of that was, you know, the prudent upbringing of like, you know, tech stuff comes and goes, but, you know, building bridges, laying concrete, building culverts really never changes. And I think that was the foresight was job security at the time. Hmm. Like, I don't know. Some, I think I, I just got lucky, right? Because like I started in my 20s. I was already kind of frugal and I just happened to put my money in the right places, which was real estate. And it wasn't an, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of flipping houses, all these first strategies. To me, that's what you do when you're, you don't have money, right? I was just pure buy, hope and pray model where you buy stuff that cash flows. And then I later went into syndications where there's more value add, better deals. But I really contribute a lot to the beginning of like just being really frugal, saving at least 50 grand every year. And taking that money and putting into something that was pretty secure and also grew like a hockey stick. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number 288. Hope everybody's having a great week. I know it's been a phenomenal weekend with all sorts of sports going on in my household with the kids and my little guy learning to ride his bike. And man, it is my birthday week, so that's a fun celebration. Been looking forward to this birthday for quite some time now. I'm turning 35. So excited for that. Got a lot of things planned. This week is uh, we head into the Easter season as well. Got to give a shout out to you listeners. I don't know what you did, but uh, things have been rocking and rolling all of a sudden on Spotify, which is uh, another place you can listen to the show if you're not listening to it there already, but have a subscription with them. Our, uh, our downloads have uh, skyrocketed on there. So appreciate that and uh, appreciate the interaction. We've had a couple people... Uh, responding in on there and some questions and some Q&A, some things with Spotify that I didn't know even know existed. So appreciate that. Once again, too, you can get on our website. And if you want to ask a millionaire a question, we've got a little speak pipe that you can submit on there. We can play it on the, play it on the show or you're also welcome to write us right in at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Always looking for new guests as well. If you're interested in being on the show, send us an email. We'll get you scheduled and get that rocking and rolling. I've got a couple couple uh, reviews I wanted to read this week. Appreciate those that uh, keep leaving those. Looking to uh, try to get to our uh, big goal, getting to 1,000 there by the end of the year. And it's the beginning of uh, Q2 here, so looking towards uh, looking towards that this, this quarter. It says, great insight into building wealth. This podcast delivers valuable wealth building information by talking to millionaires and diving into their wealth creation history. I especially enjoy hearing the ages at which levels of net worth were achieved. This podcast is unique in that it interviews everyday millionaires who are not looking to promote some book or podcast as so many other podcasts do. While my net worth is already $2.46 million, but I hope to be an interviewee someday with a higher net worth. I certainly have knowledge to share that mainstream wealth promoters don't acknowledge. And that's from Dan. Dan, we got to get you on the show. Send us an email. We'll uh, interview you now and then uh, when you have a higher net worth as well. We've got a couple of those, I think, in the pipeline. I'll go back and look at my notes, but I think we have a couple re returning guests here pretty soon uh, that we'll dive into and kind of look at where their levels have, have moved. You know, we started this thing, gosh, it's almost been six years, five and a half years 
And so we've got some that uh, we'll do a couple updates on. I know we've done a few in the past, but we're going to try to do a couple more of those. We've had several requests for those. I also wanted to read this one. This has come from the uh, case scorekeeper. Learn how other people did it. Hear how ordinary people reach their million dollars. Host's wife should be a staple on the show. Her questions are spot on. Well, thank you for that. I will make sure my wife knows that she should be a staple on the show. She'll appreciate that. She was nervous uh, doing a couple of those episodes. Maybe, maybe look at bringing her on more often. This week we have Lane. He has a net worth north of $10 million, 90% of his in real estate. He started his career as a civil and industrial engineer and worked doing that for about 11 years while he was buying some rental property. He started all that in 2009. By 2015, he had 11 units and then decided to trade in his 11 units for uh, the big leagues and doing some syndications, investing with syndicators, and then became a syndicator himself, actually. So we get into all sorts of tidbits and nuggets with him. It's a great episode. Uh, Last week, we had Rachel working in finance and accounting at a net worth of a million dollars. Go check out that episode. That's 287. And without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Lane. Lane, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, um, I guess, you know, I, I kind of followed the linear path of going to school, studying hard. I eventually became an engineer, did that at uh, University of Washington, worked up in Seattle for at least a dozen years. Um, but, you know, in parallel with that, I was buying little rental properties and just started to save $50,000, $100,000 a year. And just plowed all that into rental properties. Um, that was back in 2009. It was when I first bought my first property. And then in 2015, I had 11 of those suckers that, and they got pretty annoying to manage. At that point, I became more of an accredited investor and started to invest in private placements and syndications. And, uh, yeah, you know, kind of living the passive investor life and no working, no longer working that crummy engineering job that I really didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> and what what kind of engineer were you? I was a like a civil engineer. Well, I eventually I eventually got a industrial engineering degree and then a master's in civil, but I was never really good at like designing stuff like most of the engineers. So, you know, I went I did project management because you don't really need to need to know about much other than like checking <laughs> your emails. So, you know, I would I would manage construction projects, manage work crews, stuff like that. You know, a lot of blue collar earthwork and construction. So people think because I was from Seattle, now living here in Hawaii, that I'm like a techie guy doing tech, but no, it was kind of good old fashioned civil engineering. And I think maybe part of that was, you know, the prudent upbringing of like, you know, tech stuff comes and goes, but you know, building bridges, laying concrete, building culverts really never changes. And I think that was the foresight was job security at the time. Hmm, interesting. And, and how long did you do that? I graduated college 2007 and, and I eventually quit in 2018. But as I, as I was doing that, of course, growing the real estate portfolio to eventually yeah. go FI doing that, but I kind of stepped down. I started in private industry, you know, low quality of life. And I kind of went more toward government jobs where, you know, it's no secret. You don't need to do much at those jobs to get by and then hmm. eventually, you know, peaced out. Interesting. I want to, I want to dig a little more deep into that, especially because I think you probably have a pretty unique background being a, a civil engineer and, and dealing with that moving into real estate. I mean, some of those skills transfer over nicely. But but before we dive into all that, what's your net worth today? I mean, we, I was a little hesitant saying, and we, you and I talk, so let's just go with uh, eight figures and above. Okay. And, and and the breakdown of that is what, 90%-ish real estate at this point? Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a 
more specifically a real estate syndicator. So we buy apartments or we develop, you know, apartment buildings. Um, so I am the general partner in that. So I am going to be more skewed to eating my own cooking and having my own skin in the game. So I would say 90% of my net worth is tied up in equity and my projects. The liquidity that I keep in my on the side to acquire land or kind of bail out a deal that's struggling along as a general partner is kept in my life insurance. If people are familiar with, you know, infinite banking or what I call accredited investor banking is how I kind of do it. You know, that's kind of where I keep the cash value at hand to kind of be able to pull a, a loan from. And then, you know, I'm starting to play around with as my net worth has kind of gotten me to a point where I can get better security backline of credits, being more of a private client banking relationship, you know, putting money in T-bills and JEPI for the main purpose of, I mean, now it's nice because you can get like 4% per month in the T-bills or 8% on JEPI, but more from a source of being able to do a security backline of credit for additional sources of liquidity there. Yeah, man, we, we got some good stuff here. So let's back up here just a little bit. I want to go back. You got these rental properties, bought your first one in 09. So timing wise, in hindsight, was pretty good. Were you buying about one to two or three of those a year? Well, it, initially I was buying in Seattle, Washington, right? Which is what I call a primary market, which not a lot of sophisticated investors buy in primary markets because the numbers don't work. You know, like we, we kind of look at this ratio called the 1% rent to value ratio where the monthly rent needs to be 1% or higher of the purchase price. So like that first property I bought in 09, I think it rented out for like 2200 a month, but it was 350 was the purchase price, 350,000. That's wow. less than 1%. You're not going to yeah. be able to cash flow on that. There's a lot of unsophisticated real estate investors who call that cash flowing because the rents pay the mortgage, but you got to include all the expenses and property management. You know, you don't want to run that stuff by yourself. You know, I was limited to how much money I could save. The next property I bought was a duplex in Seattle, Washington. Again, a little bit more crummier building, more of a B plus B asset, a little bit closer to the 1% ratio. But at that time, I was starting to realize that more sophisticated investors were going after better rent to value ratio properties for more cash flow, for more stability. And that was when I started to look out, started to buy houses in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis. I'm sure a lot of the, the the folks listing have been, you know, hearing about like turnkey rentals. You know, there's a lot of people who sell those types of things. I think it's a great thing for people under quarter million, half a million dollars net worth to get started. But, you know, as I, I quickly kind of phased out of that um, after buying 11 of those things. So you, you bought turnkey ones as well? Yeah. So I had three units up in Seattle and then this was around 2012, 2013. I really started to buy more because I would sell, I would start to sell the Seattle rentals. You know, part of that was appreciation too, which I don't, I don't, you know, discount that. 1031? But yeah. 1031 okay. from a couple of those properties to nine, adding that to a couple, a few others that I bought. So I had 11 rental properties. We can talk, I'm not a huge fan of 1031 exchanges. I don't know why people do them today with bonus depreciation, passive losses. You can get that and that later. But I, I basically transform my, my portfolio from like, you know, local rentals to out of state, to turnkey, totally remote. And then in 2015, I had like 11 of those things, um, you know, each bringing in a few hundred thousand few hundred bucks of passive cash flow a month. So like $3,600 a month of passive cash flow, which, which is cool. But like, you know, I don't know what American family can survive off of that. And, you know, I had professional property management to run the thing, but, you know, just to give people a glimpse of what the heck it's like to own 11 rental properties with 
property management. You know, you're still dealing with one or two evictions a year, some kind of big catastrophe every quarter. And then you got to babysit your property manager, which is doable with 11 rentals. But if you're needing $10,000, $15,000 of passive cash flow a month, which is kind of, I think is the bare minimum for most American families, you're going to need damn near 30 of these rental properties. So, you know, multiply the exception rate by three. So eviction every other month and some kind of big catastrophe every other week, it's just not scalable. And that was kind of where I started to join different groups and find other accredited investors and kind of figure out what they they do, right? After they become, you know, unbroke under a million dollars net worth. Yeah, that's pretty pretty wild. So you get to that point, you've got 11 properties. Was there a certain thing or an event or a person you met that flipped that switch for you? Or was it just getting to that point where you're like, I, I can't manage the manager. I can't manage the evictions and all this stuff that's happening. It's just not scalable in my mind. I've got to figure something else out. Yeah, it was two things. I mean, first was the pain point, which was, you know, I think when you count it all up, I maybe had like nine evictions through that that several year period, which people think is a lot, but it's really not that much. But the exception rate, like w- one out of three of those evictions ended up to be some kind of huge repair bill. Like the like the people just trashed the property. Like I have vi- video walkthroughs of like trash properties that I put on YouTube just for kicks. And it's just like, you lose faith in humanity. You know, like a couple of the times the, ser- the sheriff comes and throws all their crap out on the street. And it's like, I mean, like, first of all, that's why we buy properties in red states, right? When people can't pay, they can't stay. Uh, uh, If people think that's unfair, I mean, that's not how I grew up. You got to pay to stay, right? You got to pay your rent. But people will trash the property on the way out. And then that only happened maybe two or three times where there was like a $5,000 repair bill or a $15,000 or a $20,000 repair bill. And then now I'm like, well, what the heck was this all for? You know, I thought we were trying to make money with this. And so that was the pain point. That was the head scratcher. Like, oh, this isn't all sunshine and rainbows, what the turnkey providers told me what was going to happen in my so-called performa sheet. And that was about the same time I started to, you know, by by luck, you know, build relations with other purely passive accredited investors who were also ditching the little rental properties and going in as a passive investor into much larger deals, more secure deals ran by professionals, right? As opposed to at the time, I was kind of just a mom and pa, you know, investor. I just had some little rental properties. And then I started, the aha moment became where, wow, like the tax benefits, when you do it this way, you're extracting bonus depreciation. You're using all your passive losses from these deals to offset your passive income and even your ordinary income. And then also how none of the debt gets put in your personal name and, you know, just a lot more benefits that I was like, whoa, I got to sell my rental property. So, you know, as I started to go into these larger syndication deals, I was also kind of selling off my rental properties, um, not via 1031 exchange, but as I was going into deals, I was getting a huge amount of depreciation and offsetting that those capital gains and depreciation recaptures. I was kind of making the transition. Yeah. We'll get into the, the transition here in a second, but I want to go back to a comment you made that's interesting. And that's that you're not a really big fan of 1031s. Why is that? Yeah. I mean, 1031s are is a tool to kind of delay, defer your taxes. Too often, the tool is sold by a 1031 salesman. And oftentimes there's a, probably a better way that you can defer those taxes. And it's simply like understanding like I mean, from a nutshell, there's ordinary income, which is your W-2, 1099, and your passive income, your 
rental property gains and like, or from syndications or things that come from K1 investments on your K1 form. The nice thing about real estate, you know, I'm not a huge fan of real estate, but what I like about it and the reason I keep coming back to and why 90% of my portfolio is real estate is it allows me to extract all these great paper losses from the depreciation of the property. And especially with syndications, you can do these things called cost segregations where you just do this little report or your syndicator, or we do it on behalf of our investors. We pay five, $10,000 to do this cost segregation report. And this report allows us to drastically write off the asset a lot quicker, oftentimes getting 10, 20 times the amount of depreciation in the first year than somebody with their own little rental property on their own. And what this does is creates a great surplus and not only offset all your passive income, because again, passive losses offset passive income. But if you have a boatload of surplus, what do you do with it? Well, first of all, you, you knock out all your other passive income from all your other investments, but maybe you can also implement real estate professional status on your taxes. And, you know, this is what a lot of our doctors will do that makes 600 grand. They'll strategically use passive losses to offset and lower their ordinary income from 600 down to $400,000, saving them 50 cents on every dollar or hundred grand right there. And you can do this with real estate professional status, or if you get to a certain threshold, you know, you want to turn most of your assets into passive income. So you, it's all passive. You can use your passive losses to offset it. Um, you know, I'm not a CPA, I'm not an attorney. And this is what I personally did for myself. Of course, you work with professionals to make this happen for you. But I think what I, what, what kind of makes me real passionate about this is like, I was once like a W-2 working slave. It's the middle class that pays all the taxes and works the hardest. It's not the wealthy doing these strategies and it's not the poor people, but it's just about educating yourself on how the wealthy do things, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I want to go back to another thing that you mentioned that, that's pretty unique. So you've got a, a, a whole life policy when did you put that in place and, and how do you utilize that as part of building your wealth? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of do this kind of three-step program, like first investing in off-market um, alternative investment deals is number one. Number two is, you know, you invest in those deals to get passive losses to drastically lower your tax bill. Third is that infinite banking thing you mentioned. And I feel like most people geek on it too much. Because quite honestly, it doesn't move the needle as much as the first two. But because you asked, you know, basically what you're doing is you're buying a whole life policy, not the ones that your friend from college is selling you where most of it is insurance. What we, we try and do is we crank down the insurance to the bare minimum because that's where the commissions come from. We don't want that. We just want this like insurance policy so we can add as much paid up additions or what we call PUAs so that we can kind of use it like a, a liquidity source. In a way, it's just like a HELOC, right? Like a HELOC, you, you buy your house, just like you buy an insurance policy, but the HELOC, you're able to, like, just like you pay down your mortgage, therefore you can take a bigger loan from your HELOC. But this is superior because you own your whole life insurance policy and you can load money in there via your paid up additions and keep your, when you have a high amount of cash, you throw it in there, but ideally, for most working guys who you know doesn't have a company or you know big up and downs in cash flow or a big liquidity source need like myself you know most guys will take a loan of most of or all of their money in cash value and their life insurance and go invest in deals you know or buy more assets you know as you you always hear 
And, and when did you start employing that strategy? I would say I started to do it in 2017. I just started with a small policy where I loaded up 50 grand every year. Kind of the old school method is like you have to pick like a five year, seven year program. You know, in my case, I put 50 grand in there for five to seven years, which a lot of people are a little uncomfortable with. Like, you know, you have to make a plan and what happens. And if year two or three, I can't put in the 50 grand or whatever I put in there. But there are programs now where you can kind of just quick load it, quick launch it all in the first year to kind of take the guesswork out of it, um, which works great for a lot of people who are brand new to alternative investing and want to cash out their 401ks because they kind of see the light in a lot of this and just want to reallocate it. Because so the game plan is, you know, if you got a big liquidity source or you sold a house, you dump that into your infinite banking, whole life insurance, then you take a cash value loan from it. But in the meantime, you're kind of making money in two places. You're double dipping. You're making about four or 5% in the life insurance. And you're able to kind of take loans from it and have it be a kind of a, a business expense. So it deducted the, the interest expense as a business owner. And then the nice thing is for me, I use it as, as also a uh, litigation kind of protection because I'm sure a lot of people are aware, like when your money's in your 401k, it's sort of asset protected right? Insert the OJ Simpson story, but no different. <laughs> the, you know, when your money's in your life insurance, it has the similar same litigation protection in there. So, you know, what the wealthy will do is after their net worth become about 10, 20 million, they start to implement more exotic strategies like irrevocable trusts and stuff like that to get it completely out of their estate, out of their name for asset protection reasons, but it's a pain. So how, what's the best of both worlds or what's kind of an intermediary? You know, instead of getting it outside of the house, in a way, the infinite banking is kind of like keeping it on in the patio undercover, right? It's got the asset protection, but it's not as untouched as completely taking it outside the house in a, in a separate trust. Yeah, for sure. So when you started this whole journey back in, in 2008, nine, you're buying your first rentals. Why did you choose to invest in, in a single family home? I, I was duped like everybody else. Everybody told me that the path to wealth building is buying the house to live in. For people who are under a million dollars net worth, in fact, like I don't think you should buy your house until your net worth is two to three times greater than the value of the house, even if you're using debt, especially if you're using debt. Like to me, buying a house, it doesn't, the difference between rental property syndications and buying your house is the tenant is paying down your mortgage for you. You're making that revenue stream and they're they're putting their heart, sweat, and tears in it. Where buying your house, I think is one of the worst mistakes people make under a million dollars net worth. Now I get it. You don't want your spouse to divorce you. That also comes into play. But from a number standpoint, your money is better off cooking in several parental properties or in several syndications. You know, how many roofs do you want? I mean, as long as you can pay the debt service on it comfortably, which is the main thing, you know, it's better to go and buy rental properties, buy assets, more assets than to buy the property you're living in. But, you know, I didn't know that. I just thought, and I, and a part of it was ego. I was like, I want to be super fast to buy my, my house that I live in. But I was living, I bought it in 2009. And at the time I was traveling all over for work as a construction supervisor, only home on Friday and Saturday. And I was like, this is kind of silly, right? And for like a frugal 20-something-year-old, 22, 23-year-old, I was like, well, let me rent this thing out. 
So I got an old property manager from college who was kind of cool to us when we were renting and just started to roll with that. And then I started to realize, whoa, I'm making a lot of beer money doing this. And I was like, whoa, if I just did this a few more times, I'll be able to create enough passive income to be able to quit my day job. At the time, I thought the idea was to pay off the properties. No, wealthy people don't do that. They don't pay off the properties, right? They buy more, more, more. And then maybe when your net worth gets to be about $5, $10 million, you can think about deleveraging and paying off the debt. But as far as like, you know, when I calculated how much I was making in these rental properties, I was like, why would I want to put my money in something making 8 to 10% the stock market stuff that's ordinary income? I want passive income and the passive losses from these investments to offset and pay less taxes, which is the kind of the second part of this big equation. But anyway, I lived, I, I like I had a pretty good job where I was kind of like a corporate traveler guy and I just didn't live anywhere for several years. So I was like saving like 100 Gs every single year. Like there'd be like, they, there'd be months where I would spend like $100 out of my own, you know, I don't know what they called it, you know, wallet these back then. But um, yeah, all of it was just going to saving up for more and more rental properties. And this is like from like 2012 to 2015. You know, it was just, it was just pretty extreme saving mode at that time. How much, how much were you legitimately living on? I mean, is it really only hundred bucks? You really basically have all of your expenses paid for and no living, just rented? Or were you basically like living in hotels? Yeah, I was living in hotels. And then okay. um, what I would do on Saturday to like, you know, because I would technically be off duty, right? I would say like, you know, I mean, I was doing work. I was working every day. So I would just not go home and just stay on the cruise site wherever you were and just kind of bridge that. Wow. Um, I mean, I paid for like a storage lock. I had a storage locker. I would have to go check the peel box. Like <laughs> it was, it was definitely rambling, man, for sure. But like, you know, today, like most of my clients, they make multiple six figures. And what I see and all I care, I ask them all the time. It's like, look, I don't care what you make. I only care what your net is. What do you save at the end of the year? Most of these guys are saving 30 grand to hundred grand plus per year. But, you know, without me doing this, I was, you know, saving close to the best of them, right? With maybe half the amount of salary that these guys have. Wow. So for, for majority of your twenties, to some degree, I mean, you were definitely an anomaly. I mean, your peers were probably not living like you were. Yeah. You know what? What girl wants to date you in your twenties, right? <laughs> you know, you don't really hit your stride until your thirties or forties or until maybe you hit million dollars net worth. I'm just kind of joking. joking yeah. Yeah. Folks, right. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, but like, you know, that I think maybe people listening, that's similar. Like, like I kind of enjoyed that. Right. And I kind of struggle with that today. Like, getting rid of like the frug frugality and it was kind of like things I could save money on. Like I, I really got off and like, it was kind of like scoring points every time I saved money or, you know, I wasn't quite extreme couponer, but I would like, you know, I definitely do a lot of weird things to like save money. You know, <laughs> like, what, what was one of the weirdest things you did? Do you, do you remember? I wouldn't go to the car washes. I would just wash my car in the rain. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, on my website, I have like a list of all these things. I think it's like simplepassivecashflow.com slash cheapo because I knew I would forget a lot of these things. But like, what's that um that pizza place where you make your whole, like you can make your custom pizza? I don't know, something mod pizza, I, think, I guess. Uh -huh. Yeah, mod but or like, blaze. 
Yeah, there's like a hack where like you can get the salad. Nobody ever gets the freaking salad. But if you get the salad, you get unlimited toppings for like 12 bucks. You know, probably now it's like 16 bucks with inflation because it was a long time ago. But that thing can feed you for like four days, you know? So you can just get the, get the salad and just load up on toppings and then save it? Yeah, yeah. And then maybe <laughs> if you run out of lettuce, you, you run into Safeway, get the 99 cent, you know, spinach <laughs> bag or something like that. But yeah, I mean... Now I look back at like, there's a point in time where money is more valuable than time. Yeah. But I, I feel like when your net worth hits half a mil, mil, that's definitely the, the transition point. Or like, I mean, now I have, you know, you've got young kids too, right? Like I've got like a almost two year old. Now the time, like time is more important for sure. But yeah, like a lot of like, I don't know, some, I think I, I just got lucky, right? Because like I started in my 20s. I was already kind of frugal and I just happened to put my money in the right places, which was real estate. And it wasn't an, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of flipping houses, all these burst strategies. To me, that's what you do when you're, you don't have money, right? I was just pure buy, hope and pray model where you buy stuff that cash flows. And then I later went into syndications where there's more value add, better deals. But I really contribute a lot to the beginning of like just being really frugal, saving at least 50 grand every year. And taking that money and putting into something that was pretty secure and also grew like a hockey stick. Yeah. Was there anything from your childhood that was critical into your, I guess, formative years that made you frugal or, or was that just kind of how you naturally are? I mean, I, I was, uh, I mean, I'm Asian, right? Like, I mean, just like any immigrants, um, you know, you're, you're taught to be pretty frugal. Like we don't, when we used to go to the restaurant, we don't order soft drinks. You know, that's a ripoff. You know, we order water. You know, like suck it up, you know, uh, if you want a soft drink, smuggle it in your pocket. You know? <laughs> um, we would always bring our snacks to the movie theater. You know, like these are the things yeah, I remember. Yeah. We, I mean, I also grew up in Hawaii and I live here now, but that's very Hawaii mindset. You know, you, you don't, you don't like waste stuff. If you have one, you have none mentality. You know, we save garbage bags, we save grocery bags because now you can't get them anymore. You don't give it out. So you save them. You know, that, that's that's kind of the culture that I was kind of brought up in. Um, you know, now I'm kind of like as as a wealthier person, like they say, like you gotta figure out what your values are. You know, like for me, definitely one was like don't waste stuff, right? It's food and money. You know, it's fine, it's fine to blow your money on things that you enjoy and like, but you know, identify what is waste and what is value. As, as you've gotten wealthier, is there something that you're more willing to spend money on that gives you back your time now? I mean, yeah. I mean, experiences for sure. I mean, the, the book Die uh, Die With Zero, Bill Perkins. Yeah, it's a know, great he's, book. He's been on the podcast. And like, I, yeah, it's it's very much like, I liked how he like separated the times. Like you, you may not be able to do everything from your 45th birthday to 50. And after that, but breaking up these bucket list items in their times, yeah, I see as a very good idea. And like, you know, not, you know, just definitely figuring out like, well, right, each kid is going to get, I don't know, $2 million each, whatever, but everything else, just spend it, spend it on experiences. You know, I'm not, I'm not huge hokey pokey on, you know, what you do in the afterlife, what happens, you know, this is all a ride or not, but just from a pure standpoint of like money as a tool, you know, money magnifies who you are as a person you know if you you are the sum of your experiences so however you want to do it you know i i interact with a lot of entrepreneurs who are a lot more on the income sheet um 
side of the the mindset. Wealthier people are more on the balance sheet side. But the the thing I like about income sheet people is that they burn their money. They burn it. And they typically, they, they burn on stupid stuff for sure. But in there, they burn it on experiences. Where the balance sheet people tend to be more people who are achieving towards a numerical goal, like 10 million, 20 million, $50 million net worth, $100 million net worth. And it can turn into like this just constant like hunt for like the score, which and when, and when you're dead, nobody cares. Nobody puts that on your tombstone, you know? Is there an experience that you've had that's been one of your favorites? You know, I, I, I am still in the growth stage. I kind of loosely have, I'm 38 now. I kind of loosely in my, have in my head that I may really start to pull things back when I'm 45 because health-wise, I kind of feel like after the age of 50, things may trail off for me somewhat, right? Where I can do everything now that I can do when I'm 44, 45, maybe even 46. But I have that loosely in my head where I think I may want to kind of slow things down and really be more conscious of blowing money at that point. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, you're asking like a specific spend recently. I mean, I I don't spend that much money. Like I maybe spend less than like $5,000 personally. I mean, I still rep my house because I think if I were to buy a house in Hawaii, it'd probably be two mil. And then I would have to put down like six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars for a down payment because you can't get a jumbo loan for multi-million dollar houses. That's just people don't do that. Mm -hmm. Um that it makes more sense for me to rent. And you know, I'm a real estate entrepreneur. So I'm gonna put every single hundred grand I got into a deal and grow it much faster than it will in a house. Um much to my wife's chagrin. But like I mean I don't spend that much money. I mean the thing I bought lately was like I have a Ford Raptor because I wanted one when I used to work construction. Cause I thought that was cool. But other than that, you know, a couple grand for car payments, a thousand, two thousand dollars for like daycare and food, and maybe a few thousand dollars for rent. I mean, I'm definitely under 10 grand burn rate a month. Wow. Even in Hawaii. Yeah. My my problem is my business. Like, you know, we have a lot of staff, you know, it's maybe, I mean, it's definitely 10, 20 times that number, but that's all on the business side. Yeah. Yeah. Burn but rate. in your personal life, you're, you're spending 10 grand, 20 or yeah. 10 grand, 12 I'm, grand a month. I mean, that, I mean, you said you're going to visit Hawaii, right? I think that's what I like about Hawaii. And that's why I moved away from the mainland, like Seattle in particular. Like it's such a pissing contest up there. Like people are like, oh, make my Tesla, you know, or, or like this Ferrari or whatever. Like in Hawaii, it's, it's, it's an easy place to kind of hide wealth. Hmm. It really is. Um, and if you kind of just put your head down, you know, you, you don't have that keep up with the Joneses too much out here. Yeah. And that's what I kind of like. When when you look out, hit that goal at 45 to maybe go back or or spend differently, is are you targeting an asset under management goal? Are you targeting a net worth goal? Are you targeting a, a passive income? I mean, I'm I'm guessing from from the from our conversation that your spending isn't going to go up that much more than it is now. So what changes at 45? I mean, it's a long enough time that I can reposition a lot of my my net worth is in equity, which doesn't mean much. It's just fake money as far as I'm concerned, kind of like people's stock prices. Until you can translate that into monthly cash flow, it don't mean nothing. So my whole plan that I feel like I have at least five years to hit is as my projects cash out, sell, instead of putting it into more and more deals and projects, which I've been doing since the last, what, 15 years or so, 
take it and put it into T-bills or JEPI, traditional investments where I can just make 4% on and also get security backline of credits to go buy more real estate too. But at that point, now it's coming out as cash flow. So something I've kind of really grasped upon a bunch of years ago is never spend the pile, but freely spend the spoils of the pile or the cash flow, right? For somebody like myself who gets really nervous about spending, you know, my nut, my pile, something that worked for me um, maybe four years ago is like I put like 60 grand into an investment that gave me 12% every year or 1% every month and I paid monthly. And if you did the math at home, that's like 600 something bucks, right? On that 60 grand. But that 600 bucks bought me, I think at the time I had a little like Mercedes coupe or something like that. That paid, that paid the lease. But that like for like for me was a big like aha moment. Like, hey, my investment was kicking, my principal was untouched. The 60 grand was untouched. And it was also going up with the pace of inflation too. But the the cash flow that came from the investment, let's just blow that sucker, right? Let's blow it. And we blew it on something I wanted, right? And to specifically call out needs, wants, and stupid stuff that you want. The goal is to get a certain amount, you know, $25,000 of passive cash flow a month with a much, half of that, majority of that as wants. And to do that, you know, all I got to do is divide that by, you know, point. 0.05, I mean, 5%, uh, you know, 5%, 10% on 2 million, which is not too much money is, you know, 200 grand right there. That'll make most people happy at 20 grand a month of passive cash flow. That's a lot of beer money. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Lane, let's switch gears here just a little bit and, and get into syndication. So you've been doing these syndications for a little bit. How, if one were to invest in, in a syndication and, and with a, with an operator and a sponsor, what are things that they should look at as they're evaluating, you know, a deal and a sponsor? Yeah, it's complete. It's the complete wild west, right? I mean, you go on Facebook or LinkedIn and you get all these random people and, you know, it, it's real estate. It's all a relationship game. And everybody's going to tell you that they're the best and they're on their website. They're going to say they did this, they did that. It's unverified private equity. And my golden rule is you never invest with somebody unless you know somebody personally that has invested with them in the past, which is hard in the beginning. Like even I didn't know anybody personally that was an accredited investor when I first started. And I jumped into deals with fake it till you make it people because there's a lot of them out there. So my tip is meet other purely passive accredited investors. That's why we have fun little retreats and games for people to play and meet each other. So to start that ecosystem for yourself. But if you want some quick tips, you know, what I would do is I would go look up how much assets under ownership they own. You know, somebody, I would say, look for at least a billion dollars of assets under ownership. You know, people, I was like looking the other day at a Facebook ad and like these suckers only had 660 million, even 600 million is not that much. It sounds cool, but it really isn't that much. That would be the first step, you know, to at least see you're working with somebody who's done a billion dollars of assets under ownership. We've done 2.1 billion the last time we counted it, but I don't feel like we hit our stride. We didn't start to hire asset management professionals until we got about maybe $500 million of assets. But that's the first way because everybody, it's an internet marketing game. This is real estate. Everybody has a cool, slick podcast and book and you know, 
website. The only real way to determine who's legit in this business is to build real relationships with real passive investors and go from there. That's really all I can kind of say about that. And and part of that is kind of, it forces you to get outside your comfort zone. But this is the world of alternative investments. You have to huddle around other comrades, colleagues to kind of make your way out into the minefield. Because there's there's a bunch of shysters out here or fake it till you make it people. And I've invested with a handful of them in my past. But um, Have you ever lost money in a deal? Yeah, yeah, handful of times. Every time it's, and this is what I call it. Like it's the counterparty risk is what you're trying to mitigate from, you know, when you're investing in real estate, especially stuff that's cash flowing, you know, workforce housing, you know, it's the nice thing about real estate. It's really hard to lose money from the investment. But when you lose money, most of the times it's through the counterparty risk, like the FTX debacle, that's counterparty risk. Somebody being stealing money, doing dishonest stuff, um, commingling money the wrong way. That's counterparty risk. As far as risk coming from the actual operation of the investment, is that's not too much of a risk. That's why you invest in real estate. That's why most people, when they make $5, $10 million, they start to play defense and go into real estate at that point. Real estate's not a great, it's not a way to build ultimate quick wealth. Having your own business, yes. Saving for 20 years at $50,000, $100,000 a year will get you there. But real estate is more of a stable way of building wealth and keeping wealth, in my opinion. You know, if you want to gamble with your money, you do crypto or Tesla stock and stuff like that. But like, I think real estate is a great way to like keep it. And it also unlocks all these tax strategies when you start to, you know, get the passive activity losses and offset ordinary income and passive income. But as far as like, you know, the risk, I think it's the counterparty risk. And that's why I say, well, meet other purely passive accredited investors, build relationships with them. What about when you're looking at an individual deal? So most people, most times the passive investors are never really given the information that you can even begin to make a good sound decision. And you're just given a bunch of like a PDF pitch deck, everything that the broker sent the syndicator. It's kind of useless. To really do um, verification, you need to have access to CoStar, which costs ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a year to verify rents, and also walk the comps and walk the property, which most passive investors will never do especially if you're investing in more than a dozen deals. Now, I have the ability, and the way I got started was getting the profit and loss statements for the last two years and the rent rolls, and I have an analyzer to um, underwrite the deal. But that goes outside the scope of passive investors. Most passive investors will bet on the jockey instead of the horse, is what they say. So doing your due diligence on the operator group because in these private equity deals, the, most of the ways they're structured anyway is when passive investors win, the general partnership win. You know, either some profit split, you know, there's alignment in the two parties. It is a partnership. It's a, essentially a JV in a simplistic form. But yeah, like most passive investors, most passive investors that are credited don't know too much about the investments. They understand the value of real estate. But I think at the very least, you know, you look at the price per unit you know, and then you look at the average rents, that's a good place to start. But that might be the extent of the technical underwriting analysis. Yeah. So you've said a couple of interesting things. One, that you you like real estate, you've been in real estate, but you're also not think it's the only asset class, but because of tax strategies, you like it. Is there another asset class out there that that, that you like that you would think is somewhat recession proof? Yeah. I mean, this is what you do when your net worth goes over five mil. 
right? You start to take some chips off the table and you go into what's called non-correlated assets, non-correlated with the economy assets. Some of those things are like life settlement investments where you're kind of betting on people's life insurance or people kicking the bucket, which is kind of technically guaranteed to happen. But at this point, it's kind of like when you get past 5 million, you really need to look at your own personal consumption levels and what is your goal? What do you really need? Some people, most people, or most people in my ecosystem, they're perfectly happy with 25 grand a month. So that is 4 million at 5%. That's easy to hit. But if you aspire to spend bigger than that, you're going to have to make an average of 5 to 10% plus with that. At that point, you may have to either stay with real estate and maybe focus on more stable investments like preferred equity, for example, is what a lot of um, high net worth investors will do. And they'll get out of the more riskier common equity LP placements. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just at that point, you know, again, like this is why you need to plug into a group of people to get these ideas. I'll just personally say what I'm personally going to do, you know, the, the next 10, 20 million I get, I'm going to start to build up my T-bill and Jeppy collection where I can make, right now you can make 4% with the T-bills, 8, 9% with Jeppy, paid monthly cash flow with that. And then I'm going to take, with the T-bills, I can take 90% of that as a loan at like SoFi plus one or something like that. Like it's a crazy interest rate. The T-bill or the Jeppy, I think you can take up to like 50, at least 50% on the leverage on that. But I wouldn't tap the entire leverage, you know, just to avoid a capital call. I would only kind of, I would have my money humming in those two things, but I would take a little loan, maybe 20, 30% on that. And maybe just go buy my personal residence with that cash, right? And that's a very low risk, low return investment. You know, that's when you buy your house. All right, Lane. Well, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive meal out that you've paid for? Ooh. Um, I didn't, I didn't pay for it, but you know, we've, we've done some pretty expensive omakases. I think they were on the scale of like 400 plus. Um, okay. I like the omakases. They're very, uh, it's more of an experience. Yeah. And I put it in category of experience. For sure. Um, What's the most expensive car that you've purchased? Uh, my Ford Raptor. I mean, it's like a hundred grand. Okay. What, uh, if you were to be a professor in college, which class would you teach? Oh, I'm not a huge fan of colleges. I don't know. I mean, something with alternative investments, I guess, and not paying taxes. <laughs> okay. What's a closely held belief that you've recently changed your mind on? I thought that everybody should do real estate, private equity, real estate forever. What I'm starting to realize is when your net worth is getting to be about five, $10 million net worth, or your today cash flow bucket is fulfilled, whether you're cool with $10,000 a month, $25,000, $50,000 a month. I think that's the inflection point. And this is well beyond you've gone FI or zero gravity or your passive income has surpassed your daily consumption and your wine budget too. But I think at that point, it's the journey back to traditional investments. Just because, just in case you die, right? Like your kids may not have the relationships and connections that you have built up over the years. And they're more susceptible to that counterparty risk of investing with a shyster. I think that's the transition. But I, I have no doubt that it is really, really hard unless you're super frugal and you don't spend any money on experiences. 
to get from half a million dollars to two to three million dollars net worth in less than 10, 20 years, unless you're investing in alternative investments. And the reason being is taxes. When you start to invest in alternative investments, typically your tax bill goes down by half. So it's kind of like flying from here, you know, Texas to Hawaii. You're going 600 miles an hour. You can't go much faster than that. But if you can cut down the, the airspeed drag on you by half, you're going to get there a heck of a lot less time. And that, that airspeed drag is kind of like taxes. And that's why alternative investments in real estate is kind of the chosen path. Like, I, I don't see it possible to make it to Hawaii from Texas to Hawaii in less than five hours, unless you're not paying taxes, if I were to combine both of these analogies. Yeah, for sure. What about, what what do you mean when you mention traditional investments? If you go through full cycle, what are you referring to there? Yeah, tr- traditional investments are all the crap that, you know, the, the big brokerages, Vanguard's, Fidelity's, Morgan Stanley's, they want you to buy all their products. Right. It's the stuff where you're supposedly making five to ten percent. And I look back when I when I was early in my twenties, I'm like looking at my little dinky rental property where I didn't do any house flipping or pain in the ass stuff there, but I'm making like 20-30% a year when you add in the tenants paying down my mortgage, so my equity build up there, the tax benefits of paying less taxes, the appreciation and the cash flow. It's like who's who stole all my money, right? And it's the big brokerages, the the it's the traditional investment houses. And I, that's my big thing is like, get off of the traditional investments like REITs. REITs, yeah, you're investing in real estates, but you're investing through a bunch of middlemen in a REIT. Get more direct with the operator or do it yourself. Cut out all the middlemen. And it's not that hard. It takes a little bit of education, but like you can, it's just frustrating because like Wall Street and all these big buildings, these banks are all taking a huge cut of everybody's investment winnings and where you as investment are taking all the risk. It's kind of messed up in my opinion. Yeah. What piece of advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out or maybe they're in and is in their 20s or maybe they're in their 30s or 40s and is just starting out on, on their wealth building journey? I mean, I, I work with people who have good paying jobs and specifically can save at least $20,000 a year. For people less than that, I'm not the guy to listen to. I'm probably the opposite you want to be listening to. I, I would probably say, well, go go work on a personal finance budget. But I think for people on the other side of the paradigm, we're able to save twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars plus a year. You need to get more on the offense and using good debt to buy assets to get the tax benefits to pay less taxes. Yeah, I mean, if I guess like for the new guy, like that was where I started. I was fresh out of college, I made close to six figures and I was able to save at least 30 grand a year. You know, that's go and buy a rental property to get started, you know, buy a bunch and you just have to like be patient and keep saving your money. But then when your net worth goes over half a million, certainly when we become a credit investor, transition over to syndications and private placements and, and, and step up to the accredited investor world, ride that to about four or $5 million net worth gets around with other high net worth people. And by then you've probably made enough connections and, you know, built enough knowledge base to kind of forge your own path from there. But I see that as kind of like the, the track to five, $10 million net worth. Awesome. Remember that's Lane with a net worth of eight figures. Appreciate you to come on the show today. Thanks guys.
Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.